You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan. And today, for a special treat, since it is such a gloriously sunny day and these cherry blossoms are in full bloom, as you can see if you're watching the video version of this episode, we are in the great outdoors recording outside here for a change. So... If you're not watching the video version, I hope you will uh, tune in just to see the cherry blossoms. They are magnificent and beautiful. This is an edition of Questions for Corbett, that podcast series where you send in the questions and I give the answers. Uh, Again, there are millions of different ways to get your questions in. There's Twitter, there's my contact form on my website, there's the SpeakPipe application on my contact form where you can record yourself leaving a question, there's YouTube or any other video sharing platform. Again, as long as you uh, can get it into me and just let me know that it's there, I will put it in the bag for next month's edition of this podcast. But as always, there are way more questions than I have time to answer. I do appreciate all the contact that comes in, but I just can't get to it all. So I hope you will will forgive me if I don't get to you or or, uh, respond to you personally. But let's see how many of these we can knock off this month. And of course, the number one way to get your question in for the QFC series is if you are a Corbett Report member, please log into the website and leave your question on the comment section of this edition of QFC. You will, uh, you'll be able to leave your question there and I will answer it in the next edition. And on that note, we had one question in from a listener, a, a Corbett Report member, On the last edition of this series, Is Lord of the Rings an Allegory, we had Richard Fitzwell who wrote, James, looking back at episode number 49, Paperclipped Nazis and Stay Behind Gladios, I noticed there was no mention of Reinhard Galen and his spy organization, even though he is featured prominently in some of the documentation you supplied. This organization seems particularly interesting given their involvement early on with the CIA and their alleged ties to NATO and the P2 in Italy, which could point to other things like Gladio. Six years on from that podcast, any thoughts on Galen and his organization? Were they not on your radar back then, and do they deserve consideration now? Thank you for the question, Richard. That is a good question. I must say, six years ago, I was really just laying the framework and the groundwork of all of this for myself, let alone for everyone listening to the podcast. So, yes, there are lots of things that were touched on in some of those early episodes that weren't really fleshed out at that time. Reinhard Galen, one of them. Yes, uh, on my radar in some sense. I know the name. I know vague parts of his biography. But I don't know a lot in great detail about how he connects into the Gladio operations. If there are people out there like yourself or others in the crowd who have more information on that, please send it in. If there's enough there for me to go on, I could make a Meet Reinhard Galen episode of the podcast in the future. Who knows? So thank you for bringing that up. And uh, again, please send in documentation, links, whatever you've got, and uh, I'll take a look at it. Okay, let's move on to Constance, who writes, Have you done any research on Operation Jade Helm? Reportedly scheduled as an eight-week-long military drill in which joint special forces are to infiltrate the civilian populations in several southwestern U.S. states. Preparation for martial law and the next false flag attack? Question mark. Thank you for the question, Constance. Uh, yes, I have certainly have seen some of the stories about uh, Jade Helm that, that are floating around out there. It does seem very worrying, some of the, the aspects of this drill. But let's put this into some perspective by reading... This interesting little excerpt, quote, according to recent AP reports, the U.S. is preparing a terror exercise named Top Off 4 this week in which three 
fictional dirty bombs go off in major American cities and in Guam concurrent with a martial law implementation drill known as Vigilant Shield and maritime WMD drills centered on Japan. More worrying than the nature of any of the exercises independently is the concurrence of all of them. As the events of 9-11 amply demonstrated, a confluence of drills on the same day cannot but hinder any response to actual terror events, regardless of what one thinks of the coincidental nature of same-time, same-place terror attacks happening in exactly the way prescribed by the so-called anti-terror drills. Uh, that is not the only reason to beware the top-off drill in particular, and then I talk a little bit about the Corbett Report's latest episode at the time. This is from a Corbett Report article written in October of 2007. Yes, for seven years, for eight years now, for the entirety of the Corbett Report's existence, I've been talking about various drills, and here's a martial law drill, here's a, a dirty bomb drill, here's a nuclear Armageddon drill, here's these zombie apocalypse drills that they're throwing out all the time now. And uh, if I wrote an article like this every single time there was one of these drills, I would never stop writing them, I suppose. Uh, it's a point that I made, I think, on a previous edition of this QFC podcast. I've certainly made it on the podcast before that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of security drills going on every single day. Just even within the United States alone, there are dozens and dozens and dozens, let alone worldwide, how many of these go on that are publicly known about and talked about and there's ample documentation for, let alone all of the other backdoors, backstage, background shenanigans that the intelligence agencies get up to that, you know, they can later claim was a drill. So the point here is, yes, Operation Jade Helm and other things like this are quite worrying because of what they talk about, but... I'm not, let's put it this way, I'm not putting uh, any bets on martial law being implemented, you know, as part of this eight-week exercise. I think there are a couple of things to take away from this. One is that, yes, we, of course, we do have to at least be aware of these types of drills, but as predictive value for events that are going to take place, so far I haven't seen anyone who's ever predicted an actual event from a drill. There have been a lot of cases like 9-11 and 7-7 and other cases we can point to where you go back and you see there were drills that were clearly in some way related to the operations that were taking place, but I've still never seen anyone predict that in advance accurately, so take that for what it's worth. And then secondly, I think it's important to look at the the types of things that they're planning for. So when they plan for insurgencies in, in the southwest U United States and, and California will have to go under martial law or, or whatever they plan in these types of scenarios, that is significant because it does show the type of operations that they're at least contemplating in the security theater, the emphasis on theater. And that's important because, for example, if if people were following the drills in the late 1990s, they would have found there were many drills talking about planes crashing into the Pentagon, planes being hijacked in, in the U.S. That Those types of things were being worked on, including even in July of 2001, including drills that were taking place as part of the... Uh, the the, uh, the, the Global Guardian exercise, or whatever the NATO exercise was called, I can't remember off the top of my head, in September of 2001, at almost the exact same time of 9-11, there was the actual plane, uh, uh, plane crash drill into the CIA headquarters, or was it the National Reconnaissance Office headquarters on the day of 9-11? 
So again, there's lots of things like that that we can look for. At the very least, we get the idea of what they're planning for. And when we put that in with all of the other things that we can look at over the years, the Rex 84 and the, the, uh, the FEMA emergency, um, uh, the construction uh, documents and, and contracts for the construction of FEMA emergency camps and all of these, when we put them together, there is a demonstrable uh, and, and, and documented route that we can show that Yes, there are stages and plans for martial law that have been in place for a long time. Can we say anything in particular about when and where and how this is going to take place? I don't think so. Uh, I stand to be corrected. But yes, things like Operation Jade Helm, we have to, I think, be aware of them, if only because of the clues they provide as to sort of the bigger picture that the national security agencies want to be focusing on at this time and what possible vectors they have for a false flag. Let's move on to Richard, who writes, I am seeking information as to the origins of the Pledge of Allegiance. It seems that I have heard or read some information suggesting it had its origin in a military salute. I have found other information, but not this little tidbit. I would greatly appreciate your help in this matter. Okay, Richard, I would greatly like to help. So, uh... What I can provide is the origins of the Pledge of Allegiance itself are not controversial. They're well documented. You could even find them on CNN or what have you. They're from a person named Francis Bellamy, who was contracted in September of 1892 to write a, uh, a basically a, a short pledge, a Pledge of Allegiance, for the Youth's Companion, a periodical at the time. Uh, Francis Julius Bellamy was a member of the Christian Socialist Movement and specifically a, a believer in militant nationalist uh, military-based socialism that would be implemented for the greater good of humanity, I'm sure. And so he came up with the actual wording, which at that time was, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And so he says because it just felt unnatural to be saying these words without any outward expression of them, the pledge, he thought it would make sense to stand at attention and, and raise your hand, uh, raise your right hand in, in the pledge to the flag. Now, I can't find any specific documentation proving, demonstrating, showing that Francis Bellamy consciously modeled that on the Hail Caesar, but that's clearly where it came from. For thousands of years, to pledge allegiance to someone, that is the the sign that has been used to pledge allegiance, you raise your right hand in a, in a mark of allegiance. And uh, that was used, as I say, going back to the Roman times, it was the Hail Caesar. That is the same wellspring from which the Nazis took their salute. So they went back to the Roman times. Bellamy clearly went back to Roman times, although I can't document that, but that's clearly where it comes from. So uh, that's why in 1942, they changed the official, officially prescribed way of giving your allegiance from the, the Bellamy salute, which is the Hail Caesar slash Hail Hitler, to putting your hand on your heart. So, in 1942, it was officially changed because it looked suspiciously like those Nazis that the U.S. was supposedly fighting. All right. Um, <clears throat> now, Francis Bellamy is an interesting character, as I hope I intimated there. And Francis and his brother, Edward Bellamy, both very interesting members of this uh, socialist, national socialist, militarist socialist movement of the late 1800s. And also, of course, Francis Bellamy, a member of the Little Falls Lodge Number no. 181 of New York of the Freemasons, and also Edward Bellamy being a prominent theosophist. 
And for those of you who don't know about Theosophy or Blavatsky or the people of her ilk that eventually morphed into the United Nations and the strange occult rituals that go on there, you can't make this stuff up. I'll direct you to a previous edition of the Corbett Report podcast where I talked about those very issues. And off the top of my head, out here in the great outdoors, I don't remember the number or name of that podcast episode, but don't worry, I will put it in the show notes so you can go and explore that. So that's what I have to say about that. And now we're going to go to an audio question that we had in via the SpeakPipe application on the contact form from Raiden. Hi, Corbett. Um, there's an interesting debate happening at the moment amongst multiple researchers, both on the economic and conspiracy front, in regards to when the ne- next economic collapse will happen and how it will happen. And uh, on the economic front, Peter Schiff is one example. He continues to believe that the zero interest rate uh, policy and QE program uh, will bring about the next economic collapse as a result of being able to not being able to sustain it, um, and that uh, that will cause uh, a massive uh, a contraction in the economy and the um, the US dollar will, will suffer massive losses as people lose confidence in it. Uh, Joel Skousen is another researcher who believes that uh, money printing and manipulation can continue right up until 2030. Uh, and Jim Rickards is another who believes that there could be a number of different flashpoints from war to uh, other um, other major major points that, that he brings up that might be um, a flash for, for a major collapse uh, you know, at any time. Um, my thoughts are that uh, it's going to be oil that dictates when the next economic collapse will happen potentially, and um, I think the availability and price of oil is something that will ultimately, um, you know, prevent them being able to, to sustain the QE program for a long period of time and will probably be the deciding factor that brings down the economy. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the timing and the mechanism for the next economic collapse, and do you agree with any of these points? Thank you for the question, Raiden. I do appreciate it, and, well, let me say, what if it is potentially any one of those scenarios or others that we could think up? Yes, absolutely. QE and ZERP being unsustainable, leading to a loss of confidence and a crash as early as September or October of this year. The USDX has been on this ridiculous parabolic curve lately. What goes up must come down. It makes sense. Uh, The idea that manipulation can continue. Well, no one thought that manipulation back in 2007, 2008, no one, uh, not very many people thought that the manipulation could continue out even this far. Well, it's been seven years and counting, so why not another 10 years? Maybe it's possible. Uh, Rickards, uh, flashpoints, war uh, being some sort of flashpoint to, to start some sort of economic collapse or precipitous event. Absolutely, completely plausible. Uh, oil availability, peak oil nonsense, uh, uh, the, the, the oil, the relations with oil, various oil producers, Saudi Arabia, the feasibility of fracking and things like that absolutely play into the economic situation overall. So all of these things are important, and that's why I do not, will not, cannot ever give a timeline for the economic calamity that I think we all understand is coming in one form or other. I think it's coming. I don't have 
any clue when it's going to come, and that's because there are not only a million vari variables that go into that, but there are a million hidden variables that we don't know either. And those involve all sorts of secret operations, secret planning, secret activities, the Presidential Working Group on Financial Matters, all of these things that we don't even, all we can see is kind of what's going on on the surface, but all sorts of th manipulations go on underneath. So how can I possibly provide a timeline? I don't even pretend to try. It would just be pure speculation. Having said that, what I do see absolutely is the trajectory that the world is on is that the US dollar will be eroded at some point, will be eroded from its place of world's reserve status to and be subsumed by likely, if we continue on the path that we're on, some sort of multilateral globalist institution like the IMF special drawing rights. I've talked about it many times before. I will continue to talk about it because I think that's exactly what the globalists want to replace the US as the world reserve currency. That's why China is angling itself to get included in the IMF special drawing rights basket right now so that we can have this wonderful multilateral global framework that will be more stable, more inherently stable than having one world superpower. And who could argue with that? Who wants the United States military NATO forces to have all of this economic might that's encapsulated in the American economic and monetary uh, hegemon? No one wants that, or, well, only the people who directly benefit from it and, uh, and demonstrably so want that. Everyone thinks it would be great if we had some sort of multilateral framework, so globalism is the only possible solution, right? Well, no, wrong, and I've talked about that in terms of the peer-to-peer -peer economy and other, other things before. Uh, I think the, the real deconstruction of that, that paradigm is not to say, well, we just need uh, different types of globalist institutions. We need to fundamentally de deconstruct, de undermine those globalist institutions by the direct collaboration. So that's the real answer. That's what I think. Timelines, speculation, I don't get into it. I don't know. Let's go to Theophrastus. I was just wondering if you knew what temperatures were, be were being recorded in the Fukushima reactors, whether they are currently submerged in water, and what we know about the locations of the corium within the reactor complexes. All right, excellent. Thank you for the question, Theophrastus. If you want the, uh, the kind of general what is being put out there right now in terms of latest observation data from Fukushima Daiichi, please go to tepco.co.jp slash en slash decommission slash news slash data dash e dot html. Link will be in the show notes. And there you'll find the monitoring in terms of uh, the airlock monitoring, the nitrogen injection monitoring, the survey map, uh, water level measurements, uh, radioactive analyses from uh, different monitoring stations, parameters related to the plants, uh, including the, the, that temperature re-rated data. Yes, they actually say re-rated on the site. <laughs> oh, lovely Japan. Uh, plant data, Fukushima Daiichi, all of this is there on the TEPCO site. So all of that data, not necessarily updated in real time, but usually just a couple of days before. Say hello to the people walking by behind me. Hello. Um, uh, but we can get more information about the reactors and where and how they're lying uh, from, for example, Japan Times. Uh, Muon Scan gives detailed but incomplete look at meltdown of number one reactor. Confirmation this week that all the fuel inside of one of the Fukushima number one's plant's broken reactors has long since melted, leaves its operator with the tricky task of eventually scooping it all out, experts say. TEPCO said Thursday it had performed a sophisticated scan of the plant's number one reactor core, giving the most detailed picture so far of what is going on in the high radiation environment. Nuclear experts said Friday that the test showed the unit's fuel rods had melted beyond recognition. 
The results reaffirmed our previous understanding that a considerable amount of fuel had melted inside the nuclear pressure vessels, but there has been no evidence that the fuel has melted through the nuclear containment buildings and reached the outer environment. Biano said, yeah, yeah, that's what we think. I mean, there's no evidence. So what does that actually mean? Well, you can find out more at uh, FukushimaUpdate.com uh, from a post that was posted up there a couple of weeks ago from Daily Coast, uh, talking about the results of this one uh, scan that they just did, basically confirming, yeah, well, it's definitely not exactly there in the reactor vessel, but we don't know exactly where it is. And it may be, parts of it may be lying on the, uh, on the refueling floor or other locations, and who knows what's gonna happen, or if we'll ever get near those reactor cores, because that's the real heart of the issue. Uh, if you go to, uh, that article, you'll also find that apparently they are going to go ahead and insert new shape-changing robots in April to see if there is enough left of the control rod drive rail to get that robot onto the containment catwalk, where it should be able to circle inside the containment itself to collect more data about the location of the corium, the melted fuel. So, literally, as I've stressed before, the technology to even get close enough to see where these reactors are lying does not yet exist. They are still experimenting and trying to even get some sort of, any sort of visual data or close reading data of where these cores are, but they don't really know. That's the long and short of it. Um, so trust the information that's coming out of TEPCO as much as, as far as you can throw it. Just more on that, just posted the other day to uh, Fukushima Update. TEPCO vows to release all Fukushima radiation data. The nuclear operator of Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant has announced that it plans to disclose all data on radiation levels recorded to the site in response to criticism of lack of transparency following the catastrophe. TEPCO will start all disclosing all data sets as soon as they become available for release, President Naomi, uh, Naomi Hirose told a press conference. The utility sta staffers aim to break away from our tendency of covering up information, he added. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it, if they did break away from that practice. I wouldn't hold my breath on it. They've lied about the situation and uh, its containment for a very long time. They didn't even tell the public that the reactors had melted down for, for about six weeks after the disaster itself. So despite the fact they knew, absolutely positively knew within 24 hours that we had a triple meltdown on the way. So there you go. So that's the latest information. Please stay tuned to FukushimaUpdate.com for regular updates several times a week. That is being handled by my good friend Brock West of AP Perspective. So uh, if you have any Fukushima updates-related uh, information, please send it his way as well as my way. All right, uh, let's move on to a Twitter question that came in from both at, at Adam's office and at Oni Nohanzo. So I'm going to assume these are the same account or they just had the exact same question worded in the exact same way at the exact same time. Uh, what are your thoughts about articles like this linking Snowden to the Koch brothers? And it's a link to Pando Daily, Snowden praised for fighting government surveillance by group that loves corporate surveillance. And it's talking about the uh, Students for Liberty giving uh, Snowden their Alumnus of the Year award recently, which is an interesting enough story, but I don't think really goes to the heart of the issue. Yeah, okay, well, an organization gave Snowden an award. Who cares? I mean, yeah, there's some interesting things to read about that organization, but I think it misses some of the more interesting aspects of Snowden and his ties and all of the all of the connections that go on. It's absolutely insane when you look at the founder of EFF, this John Perry Barlow character, and his presence on the Freedom of the Press Foundation board, along with Greenwald and Snowden and uh, Poitras and a whole gaggle of the usual suspects that we've come to see in this case. And you look at Barlow's connections and where he comes from and how he's related into Palantir and eBay and all of this 
and the Omidyar network and all of these characters that have kind of perched atop this Snowden story. It is absolutely top to bottom a ridiculous story when you start looking at these layers of the onion, the onion router as it were. And on that note, I will direct people once again to an excellent podcast episode that our good friend Pierce Redmond of Porkins Policy Review put out last year about all of these connections. Now, very much in-depth about EFF and John Perry Barlow and Freedom of the Press Foundation and Snowden's connections, how this all relates into a much bigger story that we're not being told about Snowden. Very much worth checking into. Uh, let's move on to Jane. Uh, in fact, we have a whole series of questions here about computers and, uh, and internet and censorship, so let's take a, a look at a few of them. Jane says, I have been researching the alternative news online for over 11 years now. When I first started, there were so many more sites available in the search results than now, so the censorship has already been in place for several years now. I've, been so, I've seen so many YouTubes that I wanted to save and do not know how. I have an Apple computer, and if you could tell me the best way to save YouTube videos to my computer, I would appreciate it. Uh, Alan writes, if your site was taken down tomorrow, do you have alternate plans to get back up and running? What do the other alternative spearheads have in place? Do you think you might be able to advise others how to plan for a net shutdown? What might the alternatives be for the resistance to get back online? Harry writes, James, I'm finding that certain sites are being redirected to something totally irrelevant and I'm increasingly concerned that even with your web address, I may not be able to get to your website. Do you have an IP that will allow direct access avoiding the search engine manipulations? And finally, Bob has this to say via the SpeedPipe application. Hi, James. Thanks for your latest video, The Revolution Will Not Be YouTube. You mentioned alternatives to YouTube and Facebook. I know you've made reports about them, uh, but where can I find them? Thanks. Bob. All very good questions, and since this may not be the appropriate venue to answer them, why don't we go back inside to the desktop and I'll answer them there. Okay, here we are back on the desktop, and for the benefit of those people who are only listening to this podcast, we're at DownloadHelper.net, where you can find the video Download Helper Firefox extension. So if you use the Firefox browser, you just click on Install the extension, it, and, uh, and then it's just a single click to install. And then once you have this Download Helper, you can download not only YouTube videos, but pretty much any video sharing platform or even just uh, audio that you come across online, you will be able to download it. Um, in a couple of different ways. For example, if you run across one of my videos and you think, wow, what a handsome devil, what important information, I better save this just in case it gets censored or the internet gets taken down, I think that's a great idea. There's a couple of different ways to do it. First, there's this little download button underneath the title of the video. You can choose FLV or MP4 formats. Or a, there's a little spinning ball up here at the top corner of your browser, and you can download in a bunch of different uh, formats. So... You know, extremely easy to do and uh, completely free. And uh, and so for for my own sake, I think it's just the easiest way. And uh, so I always use Download Helper. But uh, there are other websites that I guess do this. Uh, Keepvid.com and other things that I've heard about, never used myself. But apparently you just type in the URL extension and it makes a downloadable FLV for you. So there's different ways to do it. Um, you could just start page.com a search for... Uh, you download YouTube or something, and I'm sure you'll find other alternatives, but I use Download Helper. Um, Alan writes what to do if my site is taken down, if other alt-media websites are taken down, if the net is shut down. 
A lot of different things to say there. It depends really what way that cookie crumbles, because I think we all know that could go in a lot of different ways depending on how that happens. But in the overview sense, we've talked a couple of times about this. For example, in a previous episode of New World Next Week, James and I talked about uh, this article from 2010 on cyberspacewar.com, Dead Drops When Cybercom Pulls the Net. And this is the idea of these embedded USBs, uh, sticks that are put around in various public places, but kind of hidden in public places so that you could use it as an anonymous offline peer-to-peer file sharing network if you need to, kind of cloak and daggery. And of course, that's only as good as the people participating in that network. So, you know, I mean, take it for what it's worth, but it's an idea. Another idea that I talked about quite specifically in a greater length, episode 262 of the podcast, Solutions Pirate Internet, where we talked about wireless mesh networking as decentralized uh, networks that we can use as internet supplements or even internet alternatives if if worse comes to worse. And so I've talked about that. <coughs> excuse me. I've talked about that before on the program. You can check that out to find out examples of that already happening in certain communities in various places around the world. So that's one idea. But of course, that's for the kind of internet shutdown or complete censorship if, the, if and when that ever happens or the, you know, internet 9-11 when that uh, transpires. But uh, but again, it's difficult to plan for a complete shutdown other than basically, again, making sure that you have as much information stored locally as you can so that you uh, you know that you have it with you physically. And uh, and again, that's why I offer the data DVDs and what have you. So you can get all of this data directly on some disks that you can take around anywhere and you can store safely. So I think it is important for us to be doing that. More to say on that later, but uh, also Harry writes asking if there's direct access to my website, which is a good question because, of course, people might know that ICE, uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Service of the U.S., has taken down and confiscated various domain names in the past, and usually because of gambling, illegal gambling, or because of uh, illegally streaming football games or that type of thing. But of course, it's just a hop, step, skip and a jump um, away from trying to regulate uh, what what goes on, some sort of, um, uh, what do you call it, the FCC trying to, to, to mandate, you know, people give fair credence to each side of every political issue. So basically licensing, blogging and what have you. And then, of course, ICE could start seizing domain names like CorbettReport.com because, of course, .com is a top-level domain in the United States jurisdiction. So if and when that ever happens, I talked about this before in a Questions for Corbett uh, previous edition of this podcast, number four, where we answered the age-old question, why are you still alive? And in that, uh, in the show notes for that episode, there's this little uh, direct access to my server, 77.235.49.11 slash tilde Corbett 2. And that will take you directly to my server. It's not, the website is not set up to function that way right now. So basically it'll just direct you to a page not found page at this point. But if and when my site ever goes down, that will be the way that you will be able to access the site and I will make sure it works through that. So if and when my website is ever, my domain is ever seized or you can't get through CorbettReport.com, you can please just bookmark that and just keep it there for that rainy day. Uh, It's not going to be much use to you right now, but in the future, if that ever happens, that will be important. I'll put it in the show notes for this edition of QFC as well. Finally, Bob asks about alternatives to Facebook and YouTube. Uh, Very good question, important question, because of course, of course, I do not recommend Facebook or those types of uh, 
complete privacy invading tools. Of course, there are the uh, all the social media network goblin uh, ghoul uh, uh, links at the bottom of the posts here on this WordPress site, like pretty much every other WordPress site in the world. <coughs> if you are already on one of these uh, manipulated, uh, in bed with the establishment social networks, you might as well be using it to spread real information, but I never, ever recommend people sign up for them. So what should people sign up for? Well, again, I won't tell you what to or what not to, but there are some examples. There's uh, Jeffrey Tucker, of course, is associated with Liberty.me, which uh, people might have seen a recent uh, uh, Press for Truth video interviewing him, talking about social networks and Facebook and what Liberty.me is and how it can benefit people. Basically, a liberty-oriented social network, um, so people can check that out. I'm not on it myself, but there you go. Take it for what it's worth. Just check it out. Um, some other networks that I'm not on myself, but are at least worth taking a look at. Uh, Diaspora, or Diaspora, I'd say Diaspora, uh, is based on three key philosophies, decentralization, freedom, and privacy. It is a decentralized social network in which no, there's no company or no one else owns your data or handles it in any other way other than what you actually tell it to do. Um, there, There's no creepy privacy policy like Twitter and Facebook and all these other places that own your data and everything you ever do. Um, so you actually own, you actually set up a peer-to-peer -peer connection with other people um, and no, you, no, you store your data. No one's storing it for you. So there's Diaspora that operates on that and Friendica is another example. It's open source and uh, decentralized social network um, that puts privacy in the forefront. So those are some examples. Again, I'm not on any of these. In fact, I well, I don't really see the point of social networking other than um, just to help spread this information, I guess. But anyway, if you're interested, you can check those out. As for alternatives to YouTube, I think that's a tougher nut to crack because it's the question of network externality. Once you have uh, enough people assembled within a certain structure, it's very difficult to promote a different structure um, and to work from outside of it. Um, basically, YouTube is where the people congregate for video viewing and you are at least potentially able to get a viral video on YouTube. Millions of people have seen my 9-11 video because it was on YouTube and easily available through there. It would never have reached millions of people on any other network. So there's that aspect to it. But of course, YouTube is GooTube. It is clamping down. It is controlled. It is all the all your data is being stored. You have to have a Google Plus account to sign in and all of this other craziness. So we do have to start branching off of YouTube. Um, in terms of established and 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 uh, ne networks with enough infrastructure to actually sustain actual video sharing, there are the big sites like Vimeo, which I've used before, but they only let me upload one or two HD videos a week. Uh, uh, more than that, they wanted me to pay, basically. Um, there's Daily Motion, hardly any ever tr traffic through there, and it was just a pain to upload there. Uh, I used to upload everything to Blip as well as YouTube, but Blip.tv did a purge like a year or two ago where they took down every alternative media person that I know who had a Blip account got their account taken down uh, because they changed the policy or guidelines or whatever, and suddenly anything to do with alt media was just completely verboten, so they took it all down. And that was the end of that. Um, in terms of truly, truly independent alternative media-focused video sharing platforms, I've seen a number of them come and go over the years. I even promoted and talked about one uh, specifically about five or six years ago. I think it was called Veracity Videos. 
but that lasted a short time. There wasn't a lot of traffic, but still it was a lot of bandwidth for the person who was hosting it. He tried putting vi- uh, advertisements up to try to pay for that bandwidth, and everything fell apart shortly thereafter. It didn't get a lot of traffic, and uh, it didn't last very long. That's pretty much the story of every alternative media focused video sharing platform I've ever seen. Video sharing is still a very bandwidth intensive thing. It's extremely difficult to set up a network. And the problem is the bigger you get, obviously the more server space and the more bandwidth you're going to need, the more it's going to cost, the more difficult it's going to be without, you know, a big Google CIA operation behind it. It's very difficult to set something like that up. So that's why on CorbettReport.com, I host every single one of my videos directly from my server. So you can download uh, and watch the videos directly. Uh, the site isn't, the server isn't really set up for streaming. I mean, you can stream the videos directly from the website, but it's probably not the best way to do it. Probably the best way to do it is to find a video you want to see and go to that page and just download the file directly. So you would just go to download and save link as and uh, save it directly to your hard drive, which is probably the best way to do it. So that again, uh, YouTube alternatives are going to be harder not to crack, but there are still ideas out there. And uh, and if anyone has any good platforms that they know, please leave the link in the comment section and people will check it out. And we will start migrating off of YouTube at some point because we're probably going to have to at some point. Okay, moving right along. Final couple of questions before my battery runs out of juice and I turn into a pumpkin. We have Michael here who writes, The appearance of these rotating globe arc color heterodyne tempo graphics on your site, however minimal on your website and videos, is a source of concern for me. The similarity to MSM graphic sources is troubling. Uh, so this is uh, a question about the uh, part of a longer email about the, the spinning globe and things that I use as, as the logo for the corporate report. Uh, And this is a question that I've had on every iteration that I've ever done of the Corporate Report website, every logo I've ever used, every time I've had any sort of anything, basically. There's always been something. The original uh, logo that I designed way back in the day was uh, part of a globe with a radio antenna coming off of it, broadcasting around the world. That was the idea. And, you know, related to the first ever drawing I ever did as a three-year-old or whatever, which was just a drawing of the Earth and and a big satellite dish. I was crazy about that idea and space, and I was, you know, big Trekkie and all of that kind of stuff. Surprise, surprise. So, yes, I mean, absolutely, this has been part of the, the corporate report since its inception because it's a site about global geopolitics. What better visual representation of global geopolitics than the globe? But, of course, well, the globe, the, the circle, the triangles, the all-seeing eye, it's all Illuminati symbolism, so it means that I'm controlled Illuminati opposition, or or I'm unwittingly putting out the Illuminati symbols or whatever. I reject that kind of argumentation. I've certainly talked about, and I think it is significant, all of the various 666s and all of that kind of things in corporate logos. There is obviously occultic symbolism that's put in front of our faces by the powers that shouldn't be. But I think the point of that is to indoctrinate us specifically into this point that we've reached in our society right now, which is where there's this Illuminati chic and they're putting all these pyramids and eyes and things on all of the shirts and, and all of this because it's, oh, it's so cool and, oh, I'm part of the Illuminati. Not because this is an actual, some sort of Illuminati wizard warlock plan, but because it is part of the internalization of the hierarchy. And uh, it just becomes cool, and so people do it, and, uh, and people buy it, yay, and buy into it. I think that's a co-optation of some of the most basic 
ideas, shapes, symbols, representations that humans have ever done, circles, triangles, when we start seeing Illuminati in these things, then they have won. They have co-opted it. It means it is some sort of powerful, evil, satanic symbol that's going to co-opt your mind. I don't buy into that. I really don't. This is a site about global geopolitics, so my symbol is a globe. Uh, the, the colors on, on the website, red, white, and blue, because they're the most basic colors that everybody relates to from their national flags or whatever. It's all, yeah, all part and parcel of me claiming these as my own. And uh, what can I say? If that means that I'm some sort of controlled Illuminati puppet, then please don't watch the videos, listen to the audio. If you can't stand the audio, don't listen to the audio. Don't get it from me, get it from somewhere else. That's the point about this open source revolution. Get it from anywhere else, I don't care. Just get the information. It is about the information that is being provided, not about spinning globes or things of that sort. So what can I say? Yes, that is one of the, the, the logos, the trademarks, not actual intellectual property, but one of the hallmarks of the corporate report and has been since its inception and will continue to be because this is about global geopolitics. Anyway, I know some people will not be happy with that answer, but it is what it is. And finally, uh, we have a question in from Aaron regarding open source investigations. Are you still doing these? Uh, yes, Aaron, I am. I am still doing open source investigations. In fact, if you go to the website right now, uh, there is still the open source investigation on pedophiles in politics that will be uh, turned into a podcast the next podcast. I can't say when it will come because these podcasts take longer and longer to put together as more and more detailed information goes into them. And anyone who's looked at the comment section of that knows there's a bajillion different threads to follow in that discussion. I won't be able to cover all of them, but I'll try to put that into some sort of coherent narrative. So there's still time. If you are a Corporate Report member, please do log into that investigation and leave any other comments or threads or ideas or documents or links that you think are appropriate. And I'll see uh, if I can work them into the next episode of the podcast. We will continue doing open source investigations. I have no idea what the next one is going to be on after this uh, pedophiles and politics ones. If you have some ideas for some open source investigations you'd like to see, Leave them in the comment section of this questions for Corbett on CorbettReport.com. That's going to do it for today. I'm going to go enjoy whatever's left of this beautiful day. Thank you so much for joining me. James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon. Now available from CorbettReport.com. The Data DVD Volume 4. Every podcast, interview, episode, and article published on CorbettReport.com in 2011, all on two data DVDs. For details or to buy other Corbett Report DVDs, please go to CorbettReport.com slash shop.